Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 17. As we continue our study of the life of Abraham, we pick up this week with Genesis 17. We'll this week study the first eight verses of this chapter, and then next week we'll pick up with verse 9 and go, I think, to the end of the chapter. Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 to 8. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. This is the word of the Lord. Now by now, when I read this, we have the feeling that we have been here before. We've read words similar to this a number of times, but each time Scripture repeats these words, we have a different surrounding, a different context, a different environment. And this one is at a different time because we read at the very beginning that it says, now when Abram was 99 years old. And so this is the third or so time that God has made his covenant or declared his covenant with Abram. This time is 18 years after the last time. And you remember the last time. You remember that The last time that God declared his covenant to Abram, that it was on the occasion of Abram and Sarai taking matters into their own hands. God had said he would make a great nation of Abram. So after waiting and waiting and waiting for a child, Sarai finally said, you know, we're going to have to make this thing happen ourselves because God isn't doing anything. And so she had her maidservant go in, To Abram, he married her. She bore him a son. Abram named that son Ishmael. God had named the son. And uh, he acknowledged that son as his own. But you remember that God said on that occasion that this was not going to be the son of promise. In other words, this child was not going to be the one that was going to accomplish God's promise that he would make Abram into a great nation. Instead, God said, this son that will accomplish my purpose, my promises, is going to be a son from your own body. Well, Ishmael came from Abram's own body in a way. But what this indicates is that uh, the two shall be one, that his wife, Sarai, was going to be the origin of the, the mother of the child of promise, all right? Anyhow, now he's 99, and 13 years earlier, I said 18, I meant 13. 13 years earlier, God said this to Abram. It came about when the sun had set, I, I should say it records this about the, the covenant. 
It was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants, I have given this land. And so this earlier time when God contracted or covenanted with Abram, he sealed the covenant, the contract, in between the bloody pieces of a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. We read in Genesis 15 verse 9. So at that time, the covenant was all God's doing. And at that time, God did not speak of the obligations of the covenant. God did not make the covenant bilateral in any way. There was no, Abram, if you do this, I'll do this. It was just, this is my covenant. I'm establishing it. And then God committed himself by this ceremony, which was in between the bloody pieces of these animals and the dead body of these birds. And then God told him that he was bound by this ceremony of blood and he was bound to his promise that he'd make Abram's descendants more numerous than the stars in the sky. So now picture this. He said this to to Abram multiple times. Abram finally, in despair, takes it into his own hands, listens to his wife, has a child by Hagar. God says, no, it's not going to be that child. You flailed. I'm going to make you a great nation. Now it's 13 years later. And God again says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. So how tired do you think Abram was of waiting? Now, I want to make one other note here, and that is that God promised a great nation and God promised a land, and the land was Canaan, and that land was occupied by the Canaanites. It was not occupied by Abram nor by his descendants. And we are programmed today to despise colonialism All of us are perfectly, perfectly taught to say that whatever Aboriginal, whatever Native American, whatever African, whatever, whoever the original people are of the land have a moral claim to that land, right? And so we read over all these promises of Israel inheriting the land of Israel And we forget that it was the land of Canaan. And we just receive it as warm fuzzies. And that's sweet. God says he's going to give them the land. That's so nice that God will give them land. The Jews should have land. They should have the right of return to the homeland. Canaan is the homeland of the Jews. Right? We're all on board. But who did Canaan actually belong to? By the way, it doesn't look like we're loving Bloomington. I just wanted to say that. As Allie would say, just saying. And so you have this amazing thing that Europeans cannot understand, which is that the most conservative Republicans in America and the most liberal Democrats all of a sudden The two of them are agreed when it comes to the nation of Israel and the promised land. And the reason is that the most liberal Americans are Jews and the Jews are committed to the land of Israel belonging to Jews and the most conservative Christians read this and say, that's the land. They have a right to the land, the the right to the land. And so you've got dispensationalists and the editorial board of the New York Times absolutely in agreement over Zionism. And no Europeans can understand this. So let me ask you this question. What is the right of Israel to the land of the nation of Israel? What is the right? They're not the original settlers. We know that because God's promising here that they're going to inherit the land that's lived in by the Canaanites. So what, what right do the Jews have 
to Israel. Ah. Well, let me speak as an anthropologist. They have no right whatsoever. Because the original people are not the Jews. The Jews are usurpers. The Jews are colonizers. Colonialists. But guess what? God said they had a right. Because God said he would give them. And then you remember what the Apostle Paul says to the Athenians, that uber-sophisticated group in the Areopagus. He said to the Athenians that the boundaries of nations were God's decree. In other words, God's made us. God can give us any land he chooses to give us. And the people that live in that land have no prior claim to it. Because God's the creator. Do you understand that? So don't forget that as an Australian. God chose the borders of the nations. All right? And if we get all filled with moral indignation that one nation takes over another and another, just remember that God's been in the business of doing this for a very long time. And in particular, in the case of the land of Canaan, in particular, in the case of the land of Canaan, if all you want to think about is that God chose to give them the good gift of the promised land, you're not thinking properly because when God gave that land to them, what did God tell them to do? God told them to wipe out the Canaanites. And again, we're programmed to think, well, you know, the whites came to North America and brought smallpox. Or maybe we didn't, actually. Did we? And so we, just that alone, wiped out a ton of the Native Americans in this country. Right? But we think of this as being just part of the oppression of whites of the Native American population. And we just have this habit of thinking without God. God is off somewhere with some old book and some preacher, but land, Native Americans, Africa, Asia. So how long has Iceland been occupied? How long? If I'm not mistaken, like five centuries. No more than ten. You realize... I, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, Iceland has been occupied less time than whites have been in South Africa. <laughs> but nobody's going to make the claim. Now, here, listen. I have a point, all right? And my point is, if you read Scripture in such a way, well, God promises Canaan to the Jews, and so that's how come the Jews have a right to Israel today, and so America should support Israel today. You've jumped over a whole lot of stuff that you better think very carefully about. If you believe that the Israelites have a right to the promised land, it's because of this. All right, you ready? In Genesis 15, 16, God explains that he's not going to give Abram's descendants the promised land, Canaan, for an, until after 400 years of them being slaves. And then he says that the reason that the slavery is going to end is why? Well, it says in Genesis 15, 16, the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. In other words, the reason that God gave the land of Canaan to the Jews is because the iniquity of the Canaanites was finally full, and God said, wipe them out. Their iniquity has filled the cup and it's overflowing. Wipe them out. That's the basis for you supporting Israel having the right of return, the Jews having the right of return. That's the moral basis, the spiritual basis for the machinations in the Mideast. And you say, well, I know that, but the world doesn't know that. And I say, well, Okay, fine. So do you have 
do you have any biblical way of thinking what ha- about what happened in Paris? And you go, ha, 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 ha. Oh, Tim, there are a lot of dead people. I say, okay, what were there when Israel came into the promised land? Don't ever have a philosophy of history that lacks the king of the universe. Don't have a philosophy of sickness that lacks the king of the universe. Don't have a philosophy of a graveyard that lacks a king of the universe. Don't interpret anything in your life as if it does not have to do with God. Every promise that God gives to Abram that I will make you a great nation and kings will come from you and and this land's going to be your land, every time God reiterates that in front of Abram is the iniquity of the Canaanites is not yet complete. So who are the Canaanites? It's the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites and it's all those ites. And so when he says the Amorites, he means the Canaanites. And so you either live in the presence of the Lord or you live in the presence of your big brain and large heart and manipulation by the media. But you can't live in the presence of the Lord without a philosophy of history that is biblical and theological. You can't have a position on the Mideast that is non-theological. And so you can't have a position on North America, on Native American, Aborigines, you can't have a position on Asia, you can't have a position on South Africa and, and Zimbabwe. You can't have a position on nothing that isn't theological. And so when the pagans talk to us and tell us to keep our religion out of politics, tell them can't do And tell them that their position is theological also. Because it is. It's just that their God is an idol. And the principal way today of having an idol as a God is to deny that you have any God at all. So here we have in chapter 7 another account of the covenant God is making with Abram. Again it mentions the land Again, it mentions a ton of people, but the thing that makes this covenant promise different is that this one carries covenant obligations. Remember how I said before that God's covenants were always unilateral? In other words, it's God saying, this is my covenant and these are the details. And it doesn't say, if you do this, if you do this, it just says these are the details. Now, it is true that Abram believed God's promise and so Abram had involvement it is true the promises had to do with Abram and so in 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 some sense it can be called bilateral there are two parties certainly he's the party of promise that God's going to do these things for him but God doesn't require him to do certain things God puts the requirements on himself so God's going to make him into a great nation God's going to give him lots and lots of descendants more numerous than the sands of the sea more numerous than the stars in the sky God's going to make his name great, and what else? Well, God binds himself to this. How? God binds himself through the cut-up pieces of the animals. Now we begin to move into Abram's side of the covenant. And how does Abram bind himself to the covenant? It's bloody. It's the initiation rite. It's what we call circumcision. Now, we won't get to that this week, but I want you to see that God bound himself through bloody animal parts and dead birds. Now, Abram is to bind himself by marking every male in the household with the sign of this covenant. God bound himself. Now, Abram's to bind himself by marking every male in his household with the removal, the bloody removal of his foreskin. But we will get to that next week. This week, we're dealing with the part of the chapter that is before. 
Abram's 99 years old. The Lord appeared to Abram and said this. What did God say? God said, I am El Shaddai. How many of you have heard, you've heard that phrase? El is the word for God. Shaddai is the word for Almighty. So God appears to him. God says to him, I am God Almighty. God is not revealing himself to Abram here as comforter. God is not revealing himself here as all-merciful, all-loving, all-patient. God is most certainly not revealing himself to Abram here as the still small voice. God is those things. But here God says this. He says, I am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. In other words, God here is is being as, as large and glorious. That's how he's revealing himself to Abram. Now, how does that feel to Abram? Yeah. (laughs) My guess is that it feels comforting to Abram. Because generally, a man who throws himself on his face in front of a creature is scared, but also trusting. Um, anyhow God reveals him as El Shaddai, God Almighty and then he gives this command he says walk before me and be blameless so if you have God revealing himself as the Almighty God and he says walk before you and be blameless what is your response? Well, first you have to understand what it means to walk before me. When God says to you, walk before me and be blameless, which is the essence of his call to every man and woman in this world, what is he saying to you? What does it mean to walk before God? Well, it certainly does not mean to avoid God. It does not mean to hide from God. It does not mean to deny God. It does not mean to live a secular life. It does not mean to secularize the workplace, to secularize government, to secularize education. And it certainly doesn't mean to secularize your living room or your bedroom. If we walk before God, that means that every waking minute of every day and even at night when we dream, we live in the presence of the Lord. Remember Clapton's song. I have finally found a way to live in the presence of the Lord. Now, this doesn't mean the kind of trivial or trivialization that many people do when they speak of God today. You know, where they say, among the little pleasures of life is looking into the eye of God. Now, No, God is El Shaddai. And so when we live in his presence, that really does mean to live in the fear of the Lord, right? How do you live in the presence of God without fearing him? It's impossible. Now, it is true that you also trust him, that you love him. It is true that you obey him. But you can't live in the presence of El Shaddai without fearing him. So how is your life? Is your life lived in the presence of the Lord? Is it lived walking before God? Do you walk before God? Well, one way to know whether or not you walk before God is to ask yourself whether you're perfect. Because he says, walk before me and be blameless, to be perfect, to be holy. 
So it must be that a man or a woman committed to walking before God is a man or a woman who is committed to walking blamelessly. So ask yourself, are you committed to living blamelessly? And, of course, the answer is, heck no. The highest aspiration for many of you is just simply to pursue excellence. That's so pathetic. Why? Well, because excellence is defined by the world, and much of what the world calls excellence is sin. Many of you, the highest aspiration you have is not to pursue excellence, but maybe to make it in a particular sport so that you are able to earn an income or to play a particular instrument so that you can become a player in an orchestra. And then you, you settle for being in musical education and having a job in high school band. But even that's success, right? Many of you, your highest aspiration is to be a good mother or a good father. I doubt that there's anybody here whose highest aspiration is to be a good wife. Because we don't define ourselves by our husbands anymore. I'll bet there are a couple of men whose highest aspiration is to be a good husband. Because that's not as demeaning. I mean, who wants to be a good wife? That sounds like a name of a Puritan. You know? Good wife, Hummel. How many of you have your highest aspiration to be a good son? I'll bet a number more of us that's about as high as we aspire. Not so much a good daughter. I mean, a good daughter is just manipulated by her mother. <laughs> right? Because the mother's the one that defines good daughter. Some of you, your highest aspiration is to become an intellectual. That's Jeremy Chastain. A good intellectual. But even if not good, nevertheless an intellectual, right? Yeah. He's so agreeable, he just says yes. <laughs> what is your highest aspiration? Is your highest aspiration to walk before Almighty God, to tremble in his presence, and to be blameless? And my guess is that most of us would say, I've tried that, it didn't work. I've listened to a lot of homosexually inclined people in my life, a ton of them. They've been my friends, my roommate, people in my churches, worked. So I spent my life listening to people who were committed to homosexuality. And you know one thing that's common Almost to all of them that I've ever known and loved, what's common to them is that they say that they used to have an aspiration of living blamelessly, but God didn't do it for them, and so now they're done with it. I've known almost no people who have gone into the, to gayness, to sodomy, to homosexuality, who will not quickly, if you care about them, tell you, that they spent years asking God to take the temptation from them, but that God didn't do it. And so now they're living proud and out. And so we know that gay people have no desire to walk in the presence of God and to live blamelessly. The whole explanation of their life is that they've chosen to live in blame. 
And you know, if the truth be told about these accounts of Abram's life that we've been reading, the one thing we know is that the reason Abram is called the father of us all as Christians is that he did live blamelessly. Wrong. Do you like Abram yet? Women, have you found your, your heart being tugged to Abram? You know, because he, he treats his, his wives with honor? Have you found yourself liking Abram? How many of you women like Abram so far? <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with you. We men like him. How many of you men have liked Abram? <laughs> yeah, two wives. I like that part, you know. <laughs> you guys listen. The Bible's a real history of real people. And God commands Abram to walk before him and to be blameless. And Abram's a piece of work. Abram was justified, Romans tells us, before he was circumcised. And why? So to be very clear that his act of circumcision was not what made him righteous enough to be saved. And we all know what he was like before circumcision because everything you've heard about up until now is before he was circumcised, before he was marked with the sign of the covenant, before he took on his, not bilateral, but bilateral part in the covenant. And I was explaining to the first service that um, Mary Lee and I have been talking about the preaching in our church for 33 years now. And probably for the first 23 years or so, or 20 years, she listened to every sermon sometime between 11 at night and 2 in the morning when I got done it. And uh, so I, I do ask Mary Lee what she thinks of sermons. And I've been asking her that recently. And Mary Lee's told me that she doesn't like these sermons. And it's been distressing to me because I love preaching about Abram's life. I just find it fascinating. And rarely do Mary Lee and I disagree big time about the sermons that we both listen to. And you say, well, you don't listen to them. You give them. I say, no, I do listen to them. And so I was kind of confused why Mary Lee wasn't saying that was, that was good. And it wasn't because my ego was hurt. That would have been true until last week, but I've matured to the point where... <laughs> <laughs> and so after a couple of weeks of going through this, Mary Lee said, well, the stories are just so confusing. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, they are confusing. And then she was quiet, and then she said, there's so much sin. And then I realized why we don't, we don't like these stories, and the reason is there's just not a lot to like about Abram. I mean, how many of us have been trained to like a man that has a phalanx of slaves behind him as he moves across the desert? You know, we deny that we're descendants of him. We try to expunge that from the family genealogy. And then there's a little bit about lying that she's his sister instead of his wife. And then there's the bit about taking two wives, and that's a favorite. 
And then God says to him, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a great name. I'm going to let the wickedness of the Canaanites fill up and then they'll be gone and you will get their country. And we think, well, what about the dude taking the country? What about him? And then we see God commanding him, walk before me and be blameless. And we go, I don't get it. And then we know that he's in the great hall of faith in Hebrews, the whole book practically, and then we just heard him in Romans being talked about positively. And it just doesn't really make any sense at all. I mean, honestly, you have to read the Bible being truthful to yourself. You have to read the Bible as if it were a real book. <laughs> you know? You have to see where you don't like the Bible. And I don't think there's hardly anybody here who in their natural man likes the account of Abraham that you've been reading. It's just, you just don't like him. And so what's the whole purpose of this dude being our father? And the answer is that the purpose of him being our father is because he's just like you. And you say, he is not. I've never had slaves and I've never had two wives. And I say, you know something? You've had things much, much worse than that. Abraham didn't sit in his tent looking at naked women on his computer. And Sarai? Sarai's... Certainly not worse than you, let me tell you. Many of you, well, never mind, I don't like to be critical of women. <laughs> and the whole point, men and women, children, the whole point is that God takes sinners and he... He, he grabs them by the scruff of the net like a cat grabs her kittens. Yanks them, sets them on a high rock and says, walk before me and you be blameless. And you say, I can't. And he goes, duh. I've been watching. I've been watching you passing your wife off as your... I've been watching... You pat, do it again, after the first time, doing it again. And I know your son's going to do the same thing he saw his daddy doing. And you say, well then why me? And he says, walk before me and be perfect, be blameless. I can't! And he says, I will make you blameless. You just walk before me. You say, no, I can't stand the, the tension. I can't stand the tension of knowing who I am and walking before you. I'm not going to walk before you. I'm not going to come to church because I'm wicked. He says, walk before me and be perfect. Be blameless. Nope, nope. I'm going to become an alcoholic. I'm going to drink myself into non-awareness of your presence because you're holy and I cringe. He says, walk before me and be blameless. And you say, no, no, I'm going to get my doctor to prescribe drugs. The angst of life is something up with which I cannot put. Walk before me and be blameless. Nope, I'm going to screw everything up. I'm fearful. I'm timid. I'm weak. I have to hide. Walk before me and be blameless can't do it. I know. Walk before me and be blameless. No, no, no. I want to be able to, just give me a little time and, I, and I'll, I will get to the point where I can come into your presence. But right now I'm dirty. And so I can't walk before you and be blameless. Give me a little time. A couple years, you know, I'll... I'll I'll read the Bible, and I'll marry a Christian woman. That'll be helpful. And I'll visit my grandmother a whole bunch of times. 
And then I'll come back and then maybe I can bear your presence, God, because you are consuming fire. Walk before me. Present tense. Right now, walk before me and be blameless. No, no, no. I'm, I, that's an American thing. That's a white thing. I'm Asian. I have my own God. I have my own ancestors. I have my own obligations, my own moral context, my own ethnic identity. I'm a woman, and he's speaking to a man. He's not telling Sarai what to do. I'm going to wait until God speaks to Sarai. (laughs) I say, hey, hey, listen, he's not talking to me either. It's actually Abram he's talking to. But is Abram your father or is he not? Well, I'm going to wait until I have a mother. I say, okay, fine. Don't pray to God as father and you will not be in heaven. You will be in hell. Do you understand me? God is not interested in your attitude. Do you, do you know what an attitude is? You know, your perfect keeping of your perfect eminence and pride. God is not interested in who we think we are in his presence. (laughs) You know, we don't bother with God. We don't do it. God says, walk before me and be perfect. Be blameless. And either Abram is your father, woman, man, child, adult, Either he is your father, or God is not your father. Walk before me and be blameless. And so here we have obligations on on Abram's part. He, for his part, by faith, it's the only way you can come to a holy God who is El Shaddai. He is to walk in the presence of the Lord, to live in the presence of the Lord, to die in the presence of the Lord. He is to never leave the presence of the Lord. He is to live in the unbelievable tension of who he is. (laughs) You with me? Who you are and who God is. That's the life of a Christian. The Christian does not try to escape the tension of who God is by fleeing his presence. The Christian walks in the presence of the Lord and works to be blameless. That's the nature of the life of a Christian. And day after day after day after day after day, (coughs) the Christian comes to the sacrament that is an ongoing one. You know, baptism's once and done, initiation. But this sacrament, the bread and the wine is day after day after day. We eat his body and we drink his blood. Why? Well, because that's what mediates the tension between who we are and the command to be blameless. There's a reason why he said as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death. Why do you want to show the Lord's death? It doesn't make any sense until you remember that he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Walk before me and be blameless. I can't! Come eat, come drink. Walk before me and be blameless. The life of a Christian is made up of ever new beginnings. Every moment of every day, we repent again. That's what it means to walk before him and be blameless. It's such a stupid way to live from the world's perspective. 
why wouldn't you find your gift and then maximize it? You know? You got a brain, make the most of it. You know, go somewhere in Switzerland where they have a hood that's really beautiful. <laughs> no hood like David Wells' hood. Let me tell you, that thing's a humdinger. <laughs> I mean, you got the gray matter that enables you to go to Switzerland and get a hood like David Wells' hood and then publish books like David Wells' books. Who would ever want to waste his life being a pastor? If you could have a hood like that, I mean, you talk about being from the hood. Or a mother, a mother lives through her children, her grandchildren. A mother shows all the other women that she is a superior mother. Every child was just, would die to be their child. And so women compete through their children because God's given them the gift of motherhood and so they use motherhood to oppress people. Little people. Pastors. Oh, I, I'm a good speaker. You know, I, I'm facile of tongue. I can earn a good living this way. I don't ever have to work. Is Nathan here? Nathan isn't here. I was realizing this morning that I was in front of my son, grandson. I was, I was a little bit nasty yesterday. We were trying to pull out a boxwood bush. And this baby wouldn't come out. We finally had to take the Toyota to him. <laughs> and the toe strap. I was a little bit nasty, and then I realized, why was I nasty? Well, because I get out of the habit of working hard and sweating and, and being frustrated. I'm a pastor. I work with my tongue. Why should I have to work with my hands? Listen. The world thinks it's stupid and foolish to confess your sins and to be weak. You know this is true. The world thinks weakness is stupidity. And there is no way to walk in the presence of the Lord except in weakness. There's none. And really, the decision whether or not to have Christian faith is a decision whether or not to have weakness and to acknowledge it. But you know, there are a few things more disgusting than a little man you know what I mean by that? Somebody who has limitations physically and is always denying it. You know, they call it, what is it, Napoleon syndrome. But my understanding is that Napoleon was not that small, I read recently. So I don't know where it came from. But the whole world that denies faith in Jesus Christ has little man syndrome. God's not fooled. God's not fooled. God knows the depravity of our hearts. And so we can either live in honesty, clinging to the body and blood of Jesus Christ by faith, walking in the presence of the Lord, blamelessly. And you say, but you keep saying blameless, but I'm not blameless. And I say, do you think Abram was? And you say, no! And I say, God said, walk before me and be blameless. And you say, well, maybe God was confused. I say, no, I think God knew what Abram was like. Honestly. So what are you going to do? Are you going to live by faith? Are you going to live denying with little man syndrome? refusing to be weak and to cling to Jesus Christ as your righteousness. There is utility, there is reason, there is logic behind God commanding you to walk before him and to be blameless. Because when you hear that command, there's no such thing as a conditional surrender. 
You can't go to him and say, well, I have a few things here to bring to you. Over here, it's more in the deficit column. But God, if you keep your eyes here and don't look over here and let me have some time, just get off my back and give me some time to work over here until I can shift that to the asset column. (laughs) And I'll keep ahead of you far enough that you're not just smelling my stink all the time. Or behind you, somewhere away from you, he says, walk in my presence and be blameless. And you say, nope. And I say, okay, you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. What is an apostate? An apostate is someone who hears God say, walk before me and be blameless, and says, I will not walk before you. I will hide from you. I won't think of you. I'll go to church and I'll, you know, I'll, (laughs) here he goes again. Tell me when he's done. I see you. Sometimes I get a good night's sleep just hanging with you during my sermons. I live vicariously. Listen, God knows you. He knows your heart. You being Asian, African, black, white, you being a woman or a man, young, old, It's not confusing to God. You bear his image. And he says to you, he commands you, walk before me and be blameless. And now it's up to you. Will you obey his call? And do you see what Abram did? Hmm? Look at your Bibles or look up on the wall. It says... Verse 2, 3, Abram, what? Abram fell on his face. And it's so difficult for us. We hate. We hate kings. There's no better definition of an American than somebody who hates kings. We hate aristocracy. We hate nobility. And so the the concept of somebody falling on his face, it doesn't actually say fall, it says he threw himself on his face. Oh, Oh, man. What a beautiful picture of Abram's faith. He didn't run. That's what I would have done. But he just threw himself on his face. And then God, for his part, gave him many more good promises. And so don't forget the wonderful promises that are yours. That if those of you who walk in his presence and are blameless day by day are the inheritors of every promise of Scripture. You're part of a great nation. Kings will come from you. You are Abram's children. You are his descendants. You're part of more than the sand of the sea and the stars in the sky. And one day you will be holy as he is holy. And so enjoy the journey. It's much weakness, much trembling, many tears, many persecutions. But there's no joy like it. And you know how I know that? Because I I, I can see Christians. I go out in public where I don't know anybody. I see Christians. Almost never if I say to somebody, are you a Christian? Do they not say, yeah, how did you know? (laughs) know, They always say, how did you know? And I said, well, because you have such an unhappy life. That's a joke. (laughs) It's because Christians have the joy of the Lord. What song did I used to sing more than any other when I was running cross country? 
Yeah, about the joy of the Lord. Christians have the joy of the Lord. All right, let's come to the Lord's table. Let's wash in the blood. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 11. These are the words of institution of the Supper of our Lord. And often in church history, this meal has been called the Eucharist, which means the joy, all right? The cheer, the joy. And it's joyful because we're reminded that it's, it's not in our power to walk before God and be blameless, but that God has yanked us out of the pit and he's set our feet on a high place and he is making us holy day after day after day after day after day. And so we take joy in this because this is remembering his death, which is the instrument that makes us holy. And so we read the commands that he gave to the Apostle Paul, and they're recorded in 1 Corinthians 11 concerning this meal, where Paul writes, I have received from the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. And he said to them, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then, in the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. All of you drink of it. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do what? You do show the Lord's death until he comes again. And that's your glory, that's your joy, is the death of Jesus Christ. And so I bid all of you, I call all of you, I command all of you in the name of Jesus to come. But some of you can't, because you can't come if you are not by faith walking in the presence of the Lord and being blameless. Now, I know that nobody's blameless. I know all of us are filthy with sin. But some of you will not come to Jesus. You must not eat this meal until, by faith, you're living in his presence. And that living in his presence means saying to the elders of a church somewhere that you are a son of Abram a daughter of Abram, of Sarai. And therefore, God is your father. The way you do that is you meet with elders. Yeah, I know elders are men. I'm sorry about that, women, but there's no help for it. And they then, in the name of Jesus as his representatives, say to you, come and eat. We recognize the work of the Holy Spirit giving you faith, Christian faith. And so this meal was for Christians who had been baptized and are under the authority of some elders somewhere in the church. And it's also for those who forgive, those who are not living out of the presence of the Lord because of an ongoing sin that they refuse to repent of. And this is only for children who have themselves been examined by the elders. And there's no age put on that. It can be very young children who have true faith. But they are only invited by the elders, not by their parents, okay? And so I encourage you to come this morning and to take the meal. If you have children who have not yet been examined by elders, you can bring them forward. The elders want to lay hands on them and pray for them. Let's come and let's eat. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who admits your people into such wonderful communion that partaking of the body and blood of your dear son, they should dwell in him and he in them. We, unworthy sinners, approaching your presence and beholding your glory, do abhor ourselves and repent in dust and ashes. We have horribly sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. We have broken our past vows. 
We have dishonored your holy name, and we are not worthy of the least of all your mercies. Yet now, most gracious Father, have mercy upon us for the sake of Jesus Christ. Forgive us all our sins. Purify us from all uncleanness in spirit (coughs) and in flesh. Make us able from our hearts to forgive others as we plead with you to forgive us and grant that after this we may serve you in newness of life to the glory of your holy name. O Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. O Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. O Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Grant us thy peace. O God, who by the blood of your dear Son has set apart for us a new and living way into the Holy of Holies, give to us, we plead, the assurance of your mercy. And sanctify us by your Holy Spirit, that drawing near to you with a pure heart and undefiled conscience, we may offer to you a sacrifice in righteousness through Jesus Christ our Lord, who taught his disciples to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. 